I'm Damien Fowler. And I'm George Sleffo. And welcome to this edition of The Current Podcast. The Current is your deep dive into the future of TV, media, and data privacy. All explained in plain English. In plain English. We talk to the biggest names in digital marketing. And today, we'll hear from Paolo Provinciali, VP of Media and Data at Anheuser-Busch. America's most famous brewery and parent company to more than 100 brands, including Budweiser, Bud Light, and Stella Artois. But even though the company is 160 years old, it's still innovating by building out its portfolio with craft beers, hard seltzers, and craft wines. In other words, the company is adapting to an ever-changing market. We started by asking Paolo about the importance of the company's data-first approach. Data is undoubtedly a critical component of effective marketing nowadays. And because we live in this reality where consumers are absolutely overwhelmed by, you know, advertising and media, and they've developed this amazing skill of tuning out anything that they deem non-relevant to them. And so for us, it becomes a combination of driving relevance, but also resonance. Relevance is the classic thing in advertising of the right message, the right person at the right time. But then resonance, it becomes, you know, speaking to their needs and what they care about. And data in, in all of this is, is the secret weapon, right? It's the secret tool that allows you to reach the right people and understanding how to speak to them, to the things that are important to them and therefore driving both relevance and resonance. But building it data organization and making efforts in in this field is definitely a journey. You guys are a 160-year-old company. So when you're going through this digital transformation, it's a lot different for you versus a recent startup. What were some of the hurdles when you you kicked off this so-called digital transformation? Can you share some insight there? We found out three factors that were critical for us, but I'm sure it can apply to multiple, you know, other companies and other organizations out there. First and foremost, you know, it's a long-term investment. You can't really expect, you know, a payoff in year one. And I, I, my personal learning for, you know, after going through this effort of establishing, you know, the data organization in the United States was that whenever you're given a timeline of what it takes in order to build the infrastructure and the capabilities, it's good rule of thumb to just double it because there's always going to be something unexpected and and data is hard right but that's that's part of the journey that's part of the experience the other thing is that acquiring data really requires a shifting culture within the organization we come from the legacy of a large brand advertiser and therefore we oftentimes were in this mentality of broadcasting out what our message was going to be rather than thinking about what is the value exchange with consumers and why they would trust us with their data, why they will give us their data, right? It becomes particularly challenging for us being an Alcbev company in the US because we're regulated by what's called a three-tier system. So we cannot sell beer directly to consumers. And therefore, we couldn't leverage necessarily all those tools that you know D2C companies can use. But the team really stepped up their game and thought creatively how to think about their brands, the, the, the IP that the brands have associated with it, and also the, the assets that they have available, the sponsorships and all the, you know, the events that they organize in order to give consumers a reason to engage, to share their data and share their information. And, and then the last thing that 
we learn in these journeys that you know data requires a balance because it's it's easy to you know increase your CPM by layering on multiple you know data sources or segmenting your audience in a way that actually you know it's too fragmented or you start personalizing to the point that you know it's really uh, you don't see the return on investment of the increased creative costs. And therefore, you need to find the line between what, how much data you use and how much you personalize versus the return you expect to get from it. But I do believe that you know data proficiency has a compounding effect on the competitive advantage that a company can have and, and what you can achieve in the market. And so it's just a process and a journey that you need to take everyone along, everyone in the organization. And that's the, the approach we've taken. To our listeners who are hearing the three-tier system, who may not be familiar with it, the gist of it is, is it was established after prohibition. And basically, it's a legal system where producers such as AB InBev can only sell their products to wholesale distributors who then sell it to retailers and ultimately consumers. And, and that system was pretty much designed so you know you can't get a 24 case of beer for a dollar. And with that, you know, it comes different challenges that you guys have to navigate. I want to touch on uh, CTV here. During the recent advertising week, you were among several marketers who agreed that in three years, the majority of TV ad spend will move over to programmatic connected TV. I mean, that's an accelerated timeline by anyone's standards. What makes you so bullish about betting big on CTV and, and that space? There are many factors that I think make the CTV space particularly interesting and something that we'd want to bet on and you know other companies should bet on. First is the fact that, you know, CTV allows you to be way more creative in the way you think about, you know, your ads and your creative themselves. You can use interactive formats, highly geolocalized creatives. And the fascinating part about it is, is that it shifts the conversation with your creative teams and your brand teams from, you know, how can I tell the best story in 30, 60 or 90 seconds to how can I best engage with consumers, right? And this becomes a, a, a theme when you are thinking about, you know, being data-driven or data-driven media and formats, because again, it recenters everything around the consumer. And, um, and this has allowed us also to implement this concept of no dead ends, which basically is, you know, driving people through a journey and therefore not stopping at the idea of just presenting, you know, a message, but also prompting them to take the next step, to take another action, right? Which is a change from what we've seen in the past with traditional TV ads. The other thing that makes me very excited about the connected TV space is the um, forcing the organization to be more consumer centric. And so thinking about how you can deliver a message that relates more to the people you're trying to talk to. Let's shift gears. I want to talk about Draftline, your in-house agency that debuted in 2018. And I believe you guys had just three employees when you debuted, and today you have hundreds. What role has Draftline played in your data-driven marketing campaigns? Like, how does Draftline amplify your existing abilities and relationships with agencies? Draftline has been instrumental in this journey that we've taken around digital transformation, data-driven organization. Everything that we discussed, it requires much more agility 
and much more, uh, you know, data proficiency, right? And therefore, setting up a team within our organization that allowed us to have that agility, allowed us to bring together insights, media, and creative in a way that basically people are now working the same office in the same team and brainstorming, allowed us to really push on those things where, you know, we weren't getting it as much speed and as much traction with the traditional model. But Draftline was not a replacement and is not a replacement to our traditional, you know, creative agency setup and structure. We obviously work with many uh, external creative agencies. It was a complement to being able to enact on insights and on data and on creative much, much faster so that we could realize those audience-driven campaigns and in-flight optimizations that we were talking about. When I think, you know, I guess the traditional concept of the campaigns that AB InBev and Anheuser-Busch in particular are famous for are the, you know, the big game legacy ads, you know, Budweiser frogs. I think they were called Budweiser and Ur. Uh, and that was from 95. And then the Clydesdales, of course, that everyone knows. Um, you've got brand storytelling at the kind of broadest possible scale. But now we're also looking at this, you know, future of CTV creative and leaning into these different demographics. How do you think about balancing the high level brand story with these more personalized campaigns? I think it's something that needs to be done, leveraging two things. One is data and technology, but also we are relying on a regionalized team. So the way we go about this is when a big brand like Budweiser, like Bud Light, Michelob Ultra goes and briefs for, for a campaign, it does so, first of all, anchoring their brief on a consumer inside and what we call a job to be done, which is you know the desired behavior that you want to drive in your uh, target audience. So say, for example, Michael Ultra is briefing a campaign that has a, as a target, key target audience, a Hispanic demographic. It's obviously going to be more nuanced than that, but for the sake of example. And then at that point, even from a media standpoint, my team is composed of two groups, a national team and a regional team. And the great thing about them working together is that they complement each other. So the national team will, you know, provide a plan that focuses on mass reach on and the baseline plan. And then the local team is incredibly capable and, and talented in tailoring the campaign and the message to what their state or their DMA or their region uh, needs. So, for example, we're going to have Calvin in Texas that is going to do something different that Hector does in Florida, that Meg in New York, and that Brittany does in California because the Hispanic population in this example is multifaceted, right? It has different cultural heritages and um, different media consumptions. And therefore, we're bringing all together this audience-based inside brief campaign with a, a national plan, a localized plan. And then we bring it all together with technology and everything that we were talking about before, connected TV, digital out of home, programmatic, so that you can tailor your message depending on where you are, who you're speaking to. And this has forced us to think more about the end consumer and who we're talking to and how to best speak to them. When you bring personalization at scale, like once we fully get to that point, do you believe it may take away from like these water cooler moments, you know, such as the Super Bowl, where everyone's talking about the same commercial that they all saw? What are your thoughts there? 
you know, the reality is that we need a balance, right? We're always going to have those iconic moments and those, you know, temple campaigns, Super Bowl ads and and uh, that we are famous for. But at the same time, I think that, you know, everything that is happening and the word of digital programmatic, data-driven, connected TV actually allows us to take a step forward and, and do better as an industry, right? My experience when I when I watch TV is I feel like I always get bombarded by an ad about a drug for a medical condition I luckily don't have, right? And that is the chance to do better. And we're trying to go to this process, at least at AB, in terms of thinking, for example, we are partners with many NFL teams and NBA teams, and therefore, you know, we want to use their IP and their assets in order to make the message more relevant, right? And and so that it resonates more with you. But the tricky thing about that is that I cannot serve an ad at a national level with a specific team mark. And if I serve the wrong team to the wrong person to the wrong city, they're going to drink the competition beer just out of spite. So this is what we've tried to do. And we started doing that in the, in the previous NBA campaign, where basically we were tailoring our ad, connected TV ad with the different team marks, depending on the seat we were serving it on or what we knew about the consumer, right? Or who we knew, what we knew about the audience. So this gave us a, a chance to actually make it more relevant and, and take away the sense of just, you know, the generic ad. I wanted to touch on this campaign that Anheuser-Busch launched in 2020 during the pandemic. It was during what we might call uh, an e-commerce alcohol rush. And you teamed up with Drizzly, the online advertising service, on a targeted ad partnership, driving an innovative approach to drive more sales, uh, connecting CTV ads with what people you know, were buying on Drizzly. Could you talk a little bit about that partnership and how that campaign drove performance for you? So it all started from what we observed of people, you know, not going to the grocery store or the supermarket as much during the, the lockdowns and the rise of e-commerce. And therefore, we wanted to figure out how we can cater to their needs and what they were looking for. We had an established partner with Drizzly and we had to tweak our message in a way that actually was making the connection for them. Uh, you know, this is the beer that you know, this is the beer that you always hear about, that you see on TV, but now actually you can shop in a different way. And it was very successful for a couple of reasons. One, because it's it's consumer-centric and based around a consumer need, but also at the same time is, is because it was data-enabled and allowed us to do that optimization, get consumer feedback and work with our draft line team to refine and tailor and cater our creatives to what was working, doubling down what was working and experiment much more. So pulling back also on the things that weren't working for us. And that was the big unlock for us when we understood that has to be a consistent part of our mix now in every campaign that we do. I wonder if that campaign, uh, you know, feeds into your largest strategy around retail media, I know, which is a growing category. And, and how does Anheuser-Busch Think about retail and e-commerce and shopper marketing strategies. I mean, this is a fast-changing space. In particular, at the end of this year, we've seen huge acceleration. What's your take on that? Retail media, shopper media, e-commerce media, it's a fast-growing space. It's very active. It's rapidly evolving, and both in offers and capabilities. The tricky part, I think, is that all these new channels do not 
necessarily replace 100% the traditional trade media. It actually it adds on top of it, right? And therefore, you're seeing fragmentation in the industry and, and the universe of the channels that you can tap into now to, to address the audience and the consumer is just expanding. On top of this, uh, big brand and CPG companies also need to balance out what is, you know, a channel that can drive short-term sales versus what can drive long-term equity. And we try to do this in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, we put different weights and different roles of this channel, depending if a, if a brand is an established brand that have very high level of awareness in the market and it just needs the top of mind the reminder and nudge at a point of sale or if it's a new to work brand where maybe some of the work that you need to do is more establishing that awareness you know and and it representing in the correct way the brand into the world the other thing that we we're trying to do more and more now is also connecting our brand focused efforts and our rich based media to support shopper and e-commerce. Applying that principle of no dead ends, it's not just enough to serve a message, is giving a path to purchase to people that are raising their hand and are willing to buy right there and then. But at the end of the day, with any new channel and technology, you need to think about how you can develop a strategy that is grounded in data and insights, figuring out what you want to learn and how you want to measure your learnings, and and then not being afraid of pivoting if something doesn't work. To pivot, I want to talk about emerging channels. And there are so many emerging channels. Uh, right now, you have Snapchat, you have TikTok, you have Roblox, you have Metaverse. But you know, given the emerging channels that we're starting to see right now, in your opinion, you know, which one do you believe has the most upside and why? Like, why does it have you most excited? I find particularly fascinating channels that we always considered as traditional channels, but now because of the digitalization are becoming digital channels. I'm thinking about, you know, traditional TV and connected TV or out of home with digital out of home and uh, also podcasts with, uh, you know, the traditional radio that you had in the past. And so that is very interesting. We are testing a lot, both in the way we create ads, but also in the way we we buy our the inventory available, right? I think there's a lot of work to be done in uh, you know established channels that are just reinventing themselves or being enhanced by data and programmatic capabilities in that sense. I know in our previous conversations you've mentioned the attention economy, but can you like shed some light on that for our listeners? It's one of my passion projects because I think it's very promising and very important. So the concept of attention economy can be divided in, into things, buying media in highly attentive environments, but also developing content that captures and retains high level of consumer attention. We have the TV industry that is a $65 billion industry in the United States, but we have data that shows us that 30% of the ads that get aired on TV are actually airing in empty rooms. And therefore, 30% of a $65 billion industry, for me, it's a 
quite a bit of change in terms of wastage, right? And then you find also through the same kind of data that, you know, when someone is in the room, only 40% of the times they're actually watching at the screen when an ad break is on. Otherwise, they might be on their phone or being distracted or tuning out, right? And in the same way, when you think about digital environments, we oftentimes serve ads in extremely cluttered environments and sites or in feeds where the average, you know, time in view is one to two seconds. And it's really, really really hard to tell a story in one to two seconds, right? So the idea of attention economy is that, you know, the sell side need to guarantee and be rewarded on the ability to provide high attention environments, right? And the buy sides needs to put a better effort in create content that engage and resonates with consumers. Honestly, my dream is that one day as an industry, we're going to move away from this made up metric called impression. And we're actually going to start transacting on metrics that are reflective of consumer behavior, right? It will force all of us to create, you know, a better experience for consumers, which at the end of the day, I truly believe is going to be better for everyone in the industry. And that's it for The Current. Stay tuned because next week we'll have Alison Witherspoon, the US CMO of Nissan. Because we have all of these channels and we're so much more in tune and aware of what consumers are shopping for, we can create experiences based on what they're interested in. The Current is produced by Wonder Media Network. Our theme is by Loving Caliber. The Trade Desk team includes Cassie Crosby, Ivan Sikic, Kat Vassi, and Elise Liffering. And remember, I do believe that, you know, data proficiency has a compounding effect on the competitive advantage that a company can have. I'm Damien. And I'm George. And we'll see you next week.